Good morning. Uh, one of the wonderful things about church life is at the end of a youth weekend, they roll out the oldest regular preacher in the congregation. Weird, isn't it, really? Um, but I just want to point out, we, we weren't always old, those of us who are. Um, Sarah dared me to do something today, and then she failed to live up to her part of the bargain. So, so I'm just going to prove. <laughs> All right, excuse me. Basically, we were talking about the fact that she doesn't look good in any kind of hat, according to her. So I said, you'd look good in a red bandana over your head, and that I used to wear one. And she said, really? You wear it Sunday, and I'll wear one Sunday. So, here we go. <laughs> there we go. Is it, imp- no, don't ask, don't answer the question, is it improvement or not? I'm not saying. Uh, all pointless, all silly, but the point is simply this. It's okay to be silly sometimes, you know? I used to do a children's talk with lots of hats. I've got a Stetson, I've got a Trilby, uh, I've got a flat cap, uh, all sorts of hats, which are totally out of fashion. I'm waiting until the world catches up with me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I can wear them all again. Uh, but I was young once. Strange thing. And those of us who are young, if God spares you, will be my age, eventually. And even older. Yeah? yeah? It's a strange thing. And somewhere along the line, it moves. I used to be the new young Baptist minister when I was a Baptist minister. And then I heard people talking to me, or about me as, oh, he's an experienced Baptist minister. <laughs> I'm not sure where, the, where it flipped over. And then he's an older Baptist minister. Now I'm a retired Baptist minister, and to be honest, I don't feel a, a scrap different to the way I used to be. When I had hair, they used to come out here and go whoop, 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 whoop like that. Uh, if you haven't seen the photographs, I can bring them back again. Some of you have seen them. Just, you know, the, the tie-dye shirt and the uh, gold polo neck, uh, gold lame polo neck shirt. And, you know, this was the early 70s, after all, you know. Real life, real life. And church is made up of real people, be they young, be they older, old Real people who have different experiences and different preferences and different uh, dress sense. Aren't you regretting you don't share mine of the 70s now? You know, uh, which is different. And yet, uh, we're getting to this point of looking at this young Christian leader, Timothy, because we've, be- we've begun a series in looking at one Timothy. Young Christian leader, Timothy, who Paul was advising into how to lead the church. Timothy had been left in Ephesus to try and sort out the church there and to organize it and be in charge. He was like an apostolic representative, uh, sort of telling people what what Paul wanted. And he was young. We don't know how young. Um, But I guess people looked down on him because he was young, like they used to me when I was starting off as a preacher. You know, well, I, I remember overhearing people say when I preached my first adult sermon at the age of 14, it was terrible, by the way, absolutely appalling sermon, but people were very kind. But I was preaching regularly by the time I was 18, 19. And I remember hearing people say, 
well, of course, when the young man gets a bit older, you know, I'm going, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm glad to say that apart from the fact that some of what I preach is a bit more refined now, what I preach hasn't changed one scrap. Some things don't change. So we're talking about what happens when a young leader is left in charge of a church and what he has to do. I am delighted that I have been given the first seven verses of chapter 2 to preach on. And I will be fascinated to see how Andy manages with the verses which come immediately afterwards. <laughs> um, just, you know. Let me read them. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. We began the series um, looking at this advice Paul was given to Timothy uh, as to how to survive, really, in Christian leadership, I guess. And Paul tells him to uh, beware of those who would pollute the gospel, those who would dilute the gospel, make the truth of Jesus Christ something less than it really is, to be on his guard. He tells him to avoid myths and endless talk about genealogies and meaningless talk of stuff that doesn't really matter. Uh, he urges him to uh, avoid justifying irreligious or sexually immoral lifestyles. He tells him to hold fast to the truth of why Jesus came and died and also to learn lessons of the people who uh, professed faith but have ended up in total moral shipwreck. Learn the lessons from the failure of others. But that's all personal stuff. That's all personal stuff for, for Timothy. Now he moves on to stuff for the church. How Timothy should advise and guide the church. And we've got some fascinating stuff in these first seven verses. It goes on to even more fascinating stuff, which uh, will be interesting when we get to it. Praying for people. Pray for all people. That's what he says. When the church comes together, you should pray. Now, uh, Within the old Baptist tradition, which a lot of us, when we were Baptist ministers, broke out of, within the old Baptist tradition, there used to be something called the long prayer. And it was called the long prayer because it was a long prayer. And at a certain part of the service, the minister was expected to stand up and pray, and pray for the church and the people and the world and just about everything. And if anybody was still awake at the end, he'd say amen and uh, the service would move on. The problem is it was a ritual, it was a formula, and yet somehow within the life of the Church of Jesus Christ over the years, we have begun to relegate prayer to a secondary thing. We've begun to relegate prayer to uh, that which the, the fanatics do, you know? That, that which people feel confident about praying in public do, and all that kind of stuff. And yet prayer always has been, always must be, right at the heart of what churches are about. Plenty of biblical evidence for prayer being the most effective work and pastime of the Christian. You say, well, how does that work? Surely it's more effective to be sharing the gospel. Surely it's been more effective to be uh, feeding the poor or, or doing something practical. 
But the Bible is very clear on this, that actually outside the context of prayer, those things have no real purpose. They have no real God purpose. Oh, they'll help people, of course. And what the Bible suggests is that through our prayers, people are more changed and more affected than they are through our service. More is achieved in prayer than in all the other activities. And that's true of our own individual prayer. Oh, is that, is that a battle for you? Yeah? Am I the only one? You know, I can, I can rattle off, if I need to, I can rattle off a morning prayer in my personal devotions in about seven minutes. And in those seven minutes, I can just about pray for everything imaginable. All the people I want to pray for, the churches I want to pray for, the family, all that sort of stuff. And usually it manages to filter through my mind as well, rather than just... And then get, God gets hold of me and says, yeah, so uh, what was that about, you know? And you slow down and you begin to think about the people you're praying for and you begin to feel the pain of people who you know have problems and are difficulties and, and need your support. And suddenly, prayer becomes much more than just something you've got to do to get out of the way. Prayer becomes something where you realize you're, you're having this kind of interchange with God. And somehow or other, what you're doing, what I'm doing, is affecting what God's doing. And people say, well, well why pray when God's in charge anyway? And the answer is because the Bible's very clear that God has in some ways limited himself to what we pray for. If we don't pray for it, it's going to happen, by and large. That's what the Bible implies. And then together, when we come together to pray, this idea of the power of prayer and Christians being together, we give lip service to it. We believe that a praying church is a good church and all that kind of stuff. But usually in most churches, the prayer meeting is the lowest attended meeting of all. And I don't think it's because people don't believe in prayer. I think it's because people are intimidated by prayer. that They don't quite know what to do in a prayer meeting. And some people are so fluent, you know. I think I mentioned before... And when my parents were Salvation Army officers and I was a young man, I went to the, the call they were at and this dear old retired uh, Salvation Army officer, Brigadier Parsons, her name was. She prayed and she said, Oh Lord, you have tabernacled before and you will tabernacle again. And all the kids, and I was only in my 20s then, were absolutely stuffing handkerchiefs in their mouths to stop laughing, you know, because it Tabernacle just means dwelt with. But because of the way she was brought up, it was the kind of language you should use and all that sort of stuff. Couldn't care less. Let the people who are good with words be good with words. We don't want to stop that. Let the people who aren't just come and say, God help us. Because the power is in the praying. The power is in the fact that people come together in the name of Jesus and they seek God with all their hearts to make a difference in people's lives and in the world. So Paul's saying we've got to pray. We've got to pray. He says, pray for everybody. Now, he's not saying, pray for everybody in the whole world by name. That would take me more than my seven minutes. It would take a bit longer. He's not saying that, obviously, but he's saying that there should be no restrictions. There should be no limits. We, we should look around, pray for all kinds of people, all types of people. Whoever comes across our pathway, be they Christians, non-Christians, be they sympathetic or antagonistic, pray, 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 pray with intercession and with thanksgiving. I just want to press a pause button there. Sometimes we pray hard for people who don't know the Lord yet. And we think we can't thank God for them until they do know the Lord. And that's not quite true. It isn't only Christian believers who are capable of, of great goodness. 
it isn't only Christian believers who are capable of great kindness, capable of remarkable things. And when those things happen, it's called common grace. People are made in the image of God, albeit marred. When those things happen, we ought to be thanking God for them. Thank God that that is the case. Thank God that that person is being used to help someone. Thank God. But then he gives a particular context. Boy, is this a good time to be preaching on this subject. We had to pray for kings. At root, that word means leaders of kingdoms. And those in authority. Though, strictly speaking, in, in this passage, the word for those in authority is actually people of eminence. So we should pray for kings and people of eminence. However, this is not new to Paul. In Romans chapter 13, he wrote this. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. I'll repeat that. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. This is a popular subject, isn't it? This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So there is authority in that passage. Now get hold of this if you can, because this blows my mind. Paul is saying all this in the context of a day where the persecution of Christians by the authorities was at times extreme. When he wrote to Timothy, Nero was the Roman emperor. Nero, that greatest of all persecutors of Christians, the guy who, who arrested Christians, strapped them on poles, put wadding around them, poured tar over them, and while they were still alive, alive set light to them so they could eat to the, uh, have their open-air feasts to the light of burning Christians. This is Nero we're talking about. So when we say, ah, well, yes, of course, uh, but of course that doesn't mean if the, if, the, if the rulers aren't getting it right, does it? We only, this only applies if the rulers are getting it right. Well, actually, it doesn't quite work like that. So I thought it would be useful, for just for a few minutes, to suggest what our attitude should be as Christians to earthly authority. You see, as Christians, we are, if we have put our trust in Jesus Christ, he is our king. He is the Lord. As Christians, we are citizens of a new kingdom. The Bible's uh, very clear. We become citizens of the kingdom of God. We have entered the kingdom of God. We are under God's authority. And, and Paul even tells us that as Christians, we are ambassadors of that new kingdom in a foreign kingdom of this world. Our Christian identity as Christians always supersedes our national identity. I have more in common 
with Christians in outer Mongolia than I have with a non-Christian neighbor. Now you say, well, that can't be right because of all the cultural things. By more in common, I mean more that roots us together because we are children of God together. Now in terms of praying for the church across the world, that should wake us up a little bit to make us realize that that's where our heart should be. The church across the world is still being desperately persecuted to this day. There are some horrific tales coming out of China, of North Korea, uh, where to be a Christian at all puts you in fear of your life. North Korean Christians meet in secret, in woodland, in twos and threes, because they know any more than that will draw attention to themselves. And they know that if they're caught, it'll certainly be imprisonment and possibly much worse. We are citizens of a different kingdom. As such, if the legal requirements of a land are at variance to the requirements of God, we must obey God. That's what uh, Peter said uh, when he was uh, talking about these things. And we see that evidence in the Old Testament, the lives of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, whereas Jewish believers in a, a, a foreign land they were required to do things which were against their belief and they refused to do it and they paid the penalty in terms of what they nearly had to go through, but God saved them. In all other matters, we're talking about discipleship here, talking about living as Christians, in all other matters we must obey the law of the land in which we live and seek the well-being of that land, not because we are overall subject, but because we are subject to God who has commanded us to live that way. Are you happy with this year? And as ambassadors, we are to seek to influence the earthly authorities towards the standards of the kingdom of God. Jesus said we are to be salt and light. We are to be representatives of God's kingdom within this kingdom to seek to influence this kingdom in godly ways. No earthly authority exists except by God's permission. That's a tough one to swallow because there are some pretty nasty earthly authorities out there. <coughs> All rulers will have to give an account to God. And although he may use the wicked for his purposes for a time, they will not escape eventual disgrace, removal, and judgment. But that's in God's hands. And even if we feel a ruler is wrong, incompetent, or whatever, and this is particularly applicable to our democracy, even if we think a, a ruler is wrong, incompetent, or whatever, we are called to respect the position they hold and their accountability to God. Cruel lampooning of them, or indeed of anyone, is never a Christian response. <coughs> Ever. Would you like the job? So, we're citizens of God's kingdom. We have responsibility towards the earthly authorities to fulfill our discipleship of Jesus Christ, that we might be model citizens, except in such places as what the, uh, what the society requires and God requires are a divergence, and then we take a stand. But why, why pray for the leaders? You know, all right, we can talk about this, this uh, world and how we should live in it. Why pray for them? And Paul, again, is very clear. Pray for the, the civil leaders because God wants us to live peaceful. The word is tranquil. Peaceful and quiet lives. <sighs> Political leaders have the task, and they'll be accountable to God for it, 
of making and enforcing laws that lead to people living in safety with adequate provision. In this context, godliness and holiness can grow, according to Paul. Now, whatever we think of political leaders, the job we ask them to do is incredibly hard. We want them, and these are just a few things, we want them to deal with crime, firmly but with compassion. We want them to have a well-resourced but not too, uh, not too intrusive education system. We want them to provide an increasingly impossible growth in healthcare, and much more. We want them to do all this without taxing us too much. And don't forget the potholes. Yeah. This is what we expect of our leaders. We want them to, why can't they sort it out? It's their fault, it's their fault. As individuals, we can be fired up about one issue, and our neighbor can be fired up about another issue. And we both want our concern to be the priority. And very often we ask the impossible. That's why we have to pray. We pray for our leaders that they would be given wisdom. We pray that they would be led in the ways of God and come to godly understanding of things. We pray for protection for the whole of society from self-serving leaders and much more. As governments get it more and more right, the more space there is for godliness and peace. And as long as we live in a culture that sinks ever deeper into pleasure-seeking, self-indulgence, and the like, the harder the job is for government. The, the more materialistic we get, the more demanding we get, the more the celebrity culture rules okay, the more the expectations of people become totally unreal and governments find it impossible to function. And it is a sign of the disintegration of a culture when these things come to the fore. And we are living now through the disintegration of Western culture. It's, there are fundamental changes happening, which, when we're in the middle of them, we're hardly ever aware. But when we come out the other side, we look back and we think, wow. So what does God want? In the context of all this, this is pretty heavy stuff, I understand that, but if we're serious about being disciples, we want to live it right, don't we? Don't we seek the best for the land in which we live? There's a, going to be a new prime minister. Let me just put an aside in here. Sarcasm and cynicism has never been a spiritual gift. And it never will be. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't be critical. It doesn't mean we can't take what people do and say, we think that is wrong. Of course that's right. That's part of the debate, part of it. But to personally uh, denigrate, to personally undermine, to personally attack someone who is called to such a high office and is accountable to God, we actually, according to Paul, bring the judgment on ourselves that would come to them. And that's sobering. So what does God want? Sometimes we get so wrapped up in theology that we, um, we say things which are clearly not right. It's great because the, 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 the die-hard Calvinist will twist every bit of Bible verse to fit their, their, their personal view. The die-hard Arminian will do exactly the, the same and, and all sorts of different, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. Uh, all sorts of other people who have views of Scripture will come to a verse which doesn't quite fit and they'll go, well, obviously, that means... Right? So let me say this quite clearly. God's will is not always done. All right? It just isn't. 
It was not God's will that Adam and Eve should fall and that sin should enter the human experience. It was not God's will that the world would become so debauched that he sent the flood. It was not God's will that the Israelites should turn to worshipping a golden calf while Moses was up the hill getting the, getting the Ten Commandments. God didn't say, I will do this and I want them to do that. That wasn't God's will. I could go on. And so we know that God wants, according to Paul here, everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God really wants that, okay? But we also know from Scripture that not everybody will be saved. We know from Jesus' own words in the teaching in Paul that these things won't happen. Indeed, Jesus said the road was narrow and few would find it. You read the first two chapters of Romans and you realize Paul's teaching about the lostness of humankind is extreme, without hope, except through Jesus Christ. Jesus said that he was the way and no one comes to the Father except through him. The reality of hell and the fact that people go there is clear throughout the New Testament. Okay? But that doesn't change the fact that God wants everybody to be saved. Now that throws people's theology up the creek, doesn't it? We suddenly become a bit insecure. Does that mean, does that mean God isn't in control? No, it doesn't mean God isn't in control. What it means is that God's control doesn't fit our neat little boxes that we want to put it in. It is far beyond that. What Paul is doing here is to point out that the more we pray for and encourage our political leaders in their role, the more we will live peaceful and tranquil lives, and then the more opportunity there will be for us to share the good news of Jesus. That's why he says this. God wants everybody to be saved. The more our leaders get the job right, the more a culture is created, an opportunity is created for the church in confidence to go and share the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus without fear. This is what the emphasis of these verses is about. Romans 2, verse 4, is a fascinating verse because it says, it is God's kindness that leads us towards repentance. We sometimes think, oh, no, no, what, what happens is God allows nasty things to happen until people are desperate and then they repent. Now, God will use that. But one of the key issues that bring people to recognize the need to, to change and to put God first is the kindness of God when they recognize what he does for us. This is the good news that Paul sees himself as being a, a, a herald of, an, an apostle of. So let me just remind you of something. However young you are, however old you are, this morning God loves you. God loves you passionately. He created you. You were not an accident. You weren't an accidental collision of chemicals. No matter what the... Uh, uh, the backstory of how you came to exist, humanly speaking, God purposed your existence. God made you for his purpose that you might grow to fulfill all that you are in him and to know his peace and to know his joy and ultimately to be with him through all eternity. That's God's heart for every one of us in this room. Okay. Sin is the problem. The rebellion which was there in our first parents, which runs like a disease through all of us, which separates us from God, which puts ourselves on the throne rather than him on the throne, I'm going to do it my way. God, if ever, if ever there's a song that needs to be put in a can and kicked down the road, it's, it's that song. You know? Really? Just stop for a minute and look 
I haven't got st statistics here, but I was, I was looking at it uh, a couple of weeks back. Just think of how many pleasure-seeking celebrities have died in the last 12 months. People have lost hope, lost their way. People have taken their own lives or lived in such a way that effectively they were taking their own lives because they were without hope. And God loved every one of them. Yeah. But God has shared his love for us in his son, Jesus Christ. That all that rebellion and all that sin and all the me stuff which separates me from God, all that stuff was placed on Jesus and he hung and bled and died out of love, taking the penalty, the wrath of God for sin on himself that you and I could be, could be spared from that. That's incredible. And we, we, we've been Christians for so long, some of us, we go, oh, yes, that's lovely, isn't it? Lovely, it's astonishing. It's heart-rending that anyone would love anybody that much, that God, the creator of the universe, would care about me so much that he wanted to spend eternity with me and his son bore the penalty of my sin. That's woo. And anyone who'll turn around from doing it their way, with all their heart put their trust in Jesus and what he's done, is instantly forgiven by God. At that moment, the Spirit of God comes into their life. And according to the Bible, they become a new creation. Everything changes. Oh, it takes a while to work out, longer than some than others. It takes a while to work out that process by which God, by His Spirit, works in you to conform you, to be more and more like Jesus. That'll take a lifetime. But that moment is the moment you become a child of God and are accepted by Him. You can never earn it. No matter what you do, you'll never earn God's love. But you can receive it. This is the gospel that Paul was a herald of. And he was saying, please pray for your leaders. Please pray for godliness, for righteousness in government, so that there will be freedom for this story of love to be shared, so that we can get on with the task. So where are we with this? Well, very simply... And I always do this at the end of a sermon, which I, I'm convinced makes people think if you'd said that in the first place, you wouldn't have had to talk so much, would you? Um, <laughs> we need to pray more. We just need to pray more. Whether it's exciting or dull, we just need to pray more. The fashion these days in large prayer meetings is to get people in groups and all, you know, pray for different things. That's fine. That's part of the... the, the Activity in the work of prayer. But you know something? I can remember when I was 12, 13 years old, being in prayer meetings with two or 300 people in a room together. And the sense of God's presence was so overwhelming, I felt as if I could reach out and touch him. We forget about the power of prayer when everybody's together. Just, oh. We need to pray more. We need to pray for people. The people we love, our families, our friends, the ones we've written off. Oh, well, God could never reach them. Yes, he can. Just keep praying. We need to pray for those in earthly authority and show proper respect for the role. Sometimes it's difficult to respect them as people, but we should never denigrate them. And the objective of, of this prayer is that we live in a well-ordered community in which godliness and above all this gospel of love and gospel of grace... 
can flourish. Um, God's heart of love is for us all. And though he wants all to be saved, not all will be. But on my watch, as many as possible will be. Okay? As many as possible. Yes, uh, last week we had a baptism. We had three people baptized. Uh, and I, I was just blessed by it incredibly. The testimonies were fantastic and so on. And it brought back memories. Uh, when I was a young Baptist minister with hair, I remember the first time I baptized somebody. And I, I thought, oh, I'll baptize somebody. And I suddenly realized there I was standing in that water with that person at this turning point moment in their lives. There is no greater privilege the world has to offer than to help somebody make that journey from darkness to light. No greater privilege. There's nothing remotely comparable to be able to lead somebody to faith in Jesus Christ and to help them grow. This is serious stuff, folks. And before you dash out and say, yes, I must talk to people more about Jesus, fine. But let's start where we need to start. Let's start by becoming a people of prayer, people of faith, people of expectation. It's time to repent of our lack of prayer. I include me in this. Our lack of prayer, our cynicism, our cruel thoughts of political leaders and our failure to lay aside our drivenness to seek his peace and be models of this good news of which we too can be ambassadors. Let me pray, then I'll hand back to Paul. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Well, I've got this kind of thing that you, you don't actually make mistakes. I want to thank you for the moth. I want to thank you for the phone call. And uh, maybe just sometimes it takes something different to wake us up. And I pray that, as I've shared this morning, you would take hold of something of the truth of the gospel and work it deeply into our hearts. Lord, for those here who don't know the sheer joy of being released from their sinfulness and knowing themselves your children, would you please, would you please open their hearts to you? And for those of us who do, Lord, reinvigor us with a, a, a joy in who we are in you and help us, help us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.